This is 4L with Ryan O'Neill and Rebecca DeCoster. Good morning, I'm, Sunshine. I'm so glad we finally were able to come together to give people what they wanted, which is the one billionth podcast. I agree. And I think it's important that it's the one billionth podcast um, about law-related topics as well, because no one ever gets tired of that. So we're not going to talk about golf or sports, but we're going to talk about the law. Only to the extent that sports and golf and law might intersect in an interesting way, which is unlikely given the nature of sports and golf. Yeah. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way. (laughs) Well, I think if another golfer gets a very messy public divorce, we might talk about that. That's perfect. Right? That's perfect. Ryan, for people who aren't familiar with you, which is pretty much everyone. Right. um, Let's do just a quick interview so that people know who you are. (laughs) We are a venerable who's who of nobodies on this podcast. That's Uh, it. So I am Ryan O'Neill. I have been a practicing attorney in the state of Michigan for, this will be my 13th year. Uh, For the last four of them, I have worked at the Oakland County Friend of the Court as a referee. And prior to that was a member of the private bar uh, specializing in uh, domestic relations law, civil litigation, and a touch of criminal here and there. But generally speaking, civil and commercial litigation and family law was my background, which I think is very similar to yours. I think that's true. It is similar. I'm just older and have been doing this racket longer. So I am 20 years in on practicing, right? Yeah. Yes. 20 and a half Um, and started in private practice, have been at friend of the court in Oakland County as a referee for the last five and a half years. And similar to you, when I was in private practice, I did predominantly family law, particularly toward the end of my career in private practice, uh, but also dabbled in commercial litigation, uh, some construction litigation, which is I'm happy to not be involved with anymore. Um, No criminal. I never did any criminal um, activity or representation. And I'm going to challenge that first part. We're going to find, <laughs> we're going to find some skeletons and crimes you? that you've committed. Maybe it feels suddenly very uncomfortable. It would make this podcast a hell of a lot more interesting. Well, that's true. Um, <laughs> and I think the only other thing we can do to make it more interesting is to pepper pop culture references in here and there. That's a given. Other than that. That's absolutely a given. So why don't you why don't you talk about because this podcast that we came up with was really sort of a brainchild of yours from years ago. This was just the vehicle with which we decided it could be implemented. So talk a little bit about what precipitated this podcast and, and what our goal is going to be through these episodes. Okay, perfect. Um so When I was a tiny baby attorney, um, I worked for a large firm over in Grand Rapids, 
And that firm and a lot of other large firms from that area and the federal prosecutor's office, I believe, and possibly also the county prosecutor's office would send all of their baby attorneys to a workshop seminar type thing that my recollection is was several days um, of essentially mock trial practice and more experienced practitioners from that community um, giving pointers, running you through, you know, cross-examine, direct examination, how you're getting your documents in. Um, and it was extraordinarily helpful. Um, even for folks who didn't plan on litigating, it was helpful from a public speaking perspective. But from someone who wanted to be in the courtroom, um, having sort of those fundamentals reinforced was really important. Um, and then cu couple that with my frustration as a referee of being in situations where it's an evidentiary hearing and seeing a, a lack of knowledge about how to deal with certain evidentiary issues um, or even just in general professionalism and practice. I had kicked around the idea of doing a boot camp similar to what I had experienced um, on the west side of the state. And it was a little bit too daunting to try and pull that off in person. Um, and when we started being home all the time with respect to the pandemic, um, and we had been kicking around doing some sort of podcast for a while, the two sort of just merged. And the intention is for the podcast to serve as you know, quick um, episodes where we'll touch on particular topics that are intended to elevate the level of practice. And a lot of it will probably deal with family law because that's what we do all day. So inevitably that's probably where we're gonna go. Um, but I think it crosses over into other areas of practice because some of this stuff is just real general. And I think this shows our noviceness. Is that a word? Noviceness? Sure. It is now. Great. Uh, as podcast hosts, because we never even told the audience what the name of our podcast is? Um, I think it's 4L. Is that yeah. what we decided? Because the idea was that you have three years of law school. You're a 1L, 2L, or 3L. And so this is going to be all the stuff that you probably didn't learn in law school um, that you should know now. Right. Because right. I remember when I started and I think we were in the same boat. I remember, you know, working at a small firm in Rochester and, you know, on a Monday morning being handed a file and told, uh, oh, I need you to sit in and conduct this deposition today or just sit in and on the object on the deposition and you'll object to the things that need to be objected to. And, you know, in that moment of panic, it was I've never done a deposition before. Like I don't, law school doesn't sit you into a room and say, let's pretend depositions, right? We do a lot of writing assignments and, and maybe some students do moot court. There's no deposition class in law school. So I remember like those are the things that you learned on the fly. And so I think depending upon how you experience those things or what your level of training was coming up through the ranks, you maybe got off on, a good path and have developed good practice habits, or maybe you've gotten off onto a path where we need to guide you over a little bit. No, I think that's true. And I think a lot of it has to do even, you know, if you've been out for a while, how you were mentored. 
um, as a young attorney. If you had a good mentor who took the time to, to teach you how to do stuff, you're probably in pretty good shape, but not everybody has that. Um, and sometimes if you don't litigate a lot, some of this stuff gets a little rusty or you get into bad habits of being sloppy. And sometimes you're going to be in a courtroom that tolerates that. And sometimes you're not. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, rather than pushing people out of the nest and expecting them to fly with no guidance, um, this is sort of intended to be a backup to the stuff that law school can't get to because it's not, I mean, it's not really intended to teach you how to be a practicing attorney. It's intended to teach you how to think like an attorney, ask questions like an attorney, research, and it doesn't, there's, there's some boots on the ground and I think they're trying to be better about internships and mock trial and that type of thing, but they can't get to everything in three years. Right. Right. And I think what you said about mentors is, is really important because I think if you, if you are fortunate to have a, you know, Ellis Redding type figure shepherding you through the Shawshank redemption, you're going to be in better shape coming out of this than if you don't. I'm glad you tied that reference back because I was about to Google that guy's name. (laughs) (laughs) Because the practice of law in so many ways is similar to the Shawshank Redemption. It's like crawling through a river of sewage. Correct. (laughs) And we want to make it cleaner for everybody. We want to help you. So I think we might not have any idea what we're talking about. So I, think I, I, I think we absolutely know what we're talking about. <laughs> we're going to sell it that we know exactly what we're talking about. And we'll but, let, we'll figure out how many people are listening to this thing to decide whether that's the case or not. Right. Because right now there's zero. Right. And I think it occurs to me also that there isn't really a right way to, like one right way to do everything, but there's certainly a wrong way to do a lot of stuff. Right. Um, and I, I, one thing that I sort of critique, um, you know, professional seminars on is they try to like couch everything as positive. Like what are the 10 best ways for you to, you know, do your oral oral argument? Well, that's nice. But why don't you tell me the five ways in which I'm pissing off my judge? Right. Why don't you, you know, I mean, that's, I think there are some pitfalls and we don't hear about those a lot. So So as a preview of coming attractions, I think something that we can let folks know is that our series is going to focus on what you just talked about. Some of the things you can do to be effective and then the things that people do that are really, really bad. Yeah. So can we play true false super quick? Yes. Okay. Um, So I'm going to ask you true false question. Okay. And then I'm going to have you answer it. And then I'm going to tell you all the ways in which you're incorrect. I'm just, I'm probably going to back up everything you said. Okay. Okay. You ready? True or false. When you graduate from law school, you have 100% of the knowledge you need to actually practice law. So my answer is going to be false to this, but I think there's a lot of people out there that think true, also depending on where they went to law school. Oh, would you care to expound on that? So without naming names, if your law school rhymed with perhaps a (laughs) you may believe that you are fully equipped to handle any and every issue that comes before you. And I don't mean to pick on it's just the first one that comes into my head. I'm going to Um, a little bit of issue with that, though. 
Because there's, I think there are graduates from law schools of all stripes who think they're the smartest purple, purple, (laughs) smartest person in the room, right? Right. Um, And there are, I think, people who graduate from law schools of all stripes who understand that they don't know everything that they need to know. Um, And I think understanding that you don't know everything that you need to know is sort of the, half the battle. And I, we're showing up, we showed our cards before we started the true false by saying you leave law school and you don't know what you're doing. <clears throat> Cause you don't No. No, you don't know how to file a motion. You don't know what a, and, and some of our stuff will be sort of specific to Oakland County. Cause that's where you and I did the majority of our work later on. Sure. Now, you don't well, know what a, what a precipice is. First time I heard <laughs> precipice, I'm like, what precipice? No. Like, is this like I, a fancy recipe? I can't cook to start. So I'm already like freaking out. And then I'm like, what is a recipe? <laughs> and I remember in law school, someone asking uh, like a question like that, like, well, how do you file it? Or well, how do you know what to put on your notice of hearing? And the response was, well, your secretary will know how to do that. Well, I got news for you, professors. My secretary did not know how to do that. <laughs> um, and I didn't know what a precipice was until I showed up for a motion call and someone told me I had not filed one. Right. So, and by I, I mean my secretary. Right. <laughs> but it's, I'm, it can be embarrassing. And those are the kinds of things where, you know, you're learning boots on the ground and you're learning at your client's expense. And that is probably not the best way to go about doing that stuff. Yeah. There's absolutely an aspect of trial by fire. in in the practice of law. And so again, I think if our, if our series can help people avoid some of those pitfalls, I think mission accomplished for us, but obviously the answer to your question is false, right? All all joking aside about where you went to law school. Right. Um, Nobody walks out with a hundred percent readiness, knowledge to be able to tackle each and everything that the law is going to present to you, including, and maybe most importantly, um, how to handle and approach and deal with clients, which will be another focus of our podcast. I think that's true. And I, you know, I'm probably going to demur to you on a lot of that because I think you were probably better at dealing with your clients than I was with mine. It would depend entirely on who you asked. (laughs) So, and if I were going to ballpark a percentage of how much you know, when you leave law school that you need to know in order to, effectively practice as a litigator, I would ballpark it at you walking out the door of law school and knowing 30% of what you need to know. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, then you, you, so you take all the stuff you learned in law school and then you sort of condense it down to like 15 core subjects so that you can take one single exam. <laughs> so you're already, as soon as you leave law school, you're already reshifting your, your mental focus in terms of, okay, well now I need to remember, you know, con law, crim law, torts, uh, civil procedure, and I'm going to just focus on the nuts and bolts of those things so that I can pass this gargantuan test so that I can actually practice law and be a lawyer. Or alternatively, since I didn't take secured transactions, I'm going to learn it all right now so that I can forget it in three months so I can pass this exam. Yeah. Right? Thank goodness for secured transactions. All right. Question two. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. True or false? 
Attorneys who've been practicing longer are more skilled and proficient than attorneys who've not been practicing as long. So again, this one's going to be a depends on who you ask type of question, but I'm going to say false. Yeah, I think as a general premise, that's false. And I, I, maybe there's something about abject terror that makes you more diligent when you're a younger attorney, mm-hmm. no, like knowing that you don't know everything. Um, and I'm consistently shocked by attorneys who've been practicing for a quarter of a century or for 40 years who don't know how to enter an exhibit. It's shocking to me. Right. Right. So. Or, or who just, well, let me phrase it like this. I, given that we are beginning this series in the middle of a pandemic where the entire approach to practicing law has shifted. We've, we've left physical buildings and are now conducting hearings and trials entirely online and in remote hearing rooms. Um, there's there's going to be some advantages to being a younger attorney now who perhaps is more technologically savvy than somebody who has, again, for 40 or 50 years walked into the courthouse and, and practiced law that way. I mean, there's there's going to be a little bit of a shift, a paradigm shift because of the new way in which we're practicing law. And I don't want to give any spoilers to anybody, but if you're listening to this and you think that the virtual hearings is something that's going to end as soon as 300 million Americans are vaccinated, it's not. No. This is, not. This is the way of the future and, and how we're going to be doing things moving forward. That's true. Although I will say that regardless of the format, whether it's in person or via Zoom, like I'm not holding anyone's feet to the fire if they're fumbling with screen sharing on Zoom. I, right. you know, I have zero problem with that. I'm not going to be impatient about that. What I am going to be impatient about is once you have screen shared that exhibit and you've got it up, that you don't know what questions to ask to lay a foundation to get that document admitted, or even know that you need to ask foundational questions to get that document admitted. That's my frustration is not whether or not you're technically savvy. I understand there's a huge learning curve for that stuff. But if you don't know what questions to ask, I mean, you've got a more fundamental problem than whether or not you know how to screen share. Right. Exactly. Okay. You ready for another one? I am. These are great. Uh, Yeah. Let's pretend like I didn't make these up and show them all to you ahead of time. (laughs) This is the first time I've seen any of these. What are you talking about? (laughs) All right. Uh, number three, true or false? As a lawyer, the way you behave and practice in one case will not affect your re- reputation at large. Uh, 1,000% false. Why? why? Why do you suppose that is? Aren't we all insulated and in tiny bubbles and no one talks to each other? No. <laughs> and, and, and here's the problem. It, 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 I think attorneys sometimes have a belief that that's the case, that what happens in one courtroom doesn't leave the other courtroom or or make its way into another courtroom. Uh, That's just not pragmatic. Number one, even if you assumed that judges don't talk amongst themselves about things that happen on their cases, um, which I think would be a incorrect thing to think, given that Um, You know, the idea behind all of this is that we try to learn from one another and share our experiences with one another. 
that's what makes you know attorneys better attorneys that's what makes jurists better jurists is that we're we're sharing our experiences and and talking and seeking the counsel of one another to find out what we can do to be better um those those bad experiences are going to be shared they're also going to be shared amongst you know the members of the private bar who happen to be sitting in the courtroom at that time now again it might be a little bit more insulated now that hearings tend to be uh more one-on-one you know we don't have a gallery sitting on these Zoom hearings right now. So I guess some of this might be a little bit more before Zoom, but how you behave on a case is absolutely gonna be reflected and and portrayed to either other judges or other attorneys. Well, and I, yeah, I don't know to what extent the judges talk to each other, but certainly court staff talks to each other. Um, and even if you don't have a gallery full of attorneys watching you, you don't know who your opposing counsel knows. Um, And certainly when I was in private practice, I had a group of attorneys that I spoke with regularly and it was, it was digital you know, it's like a Facebook group or whatever. And I, I have a great example of this. I received um, some discovery requests from an attorney that I did not know. I'd never had a case with them before. And one of the discovery, at least one of the discovery requests was so beyond the pale um, about the status of my client before the marriage or at the time of the marriage as to whether or not she was a virgin. And it was so beyond the pale that I immediately send a message to my friends who practiced in that county exclusively does anyone know this guy? What's his deal? And here's the discovery that I got. And I got back a lot of information about that particular attorney and the way that they practiced. So even if it's not your behavior in a courtroom, even if it's just your, the way you're handling a file, word gets around. Right. And you don't know who people know. Yeah, I, I think the big takeaway is, and it was something I was always cognizant of when I was practicing, is assume whatever you do, again, whether it's issuing a discovery request, filing a motion, the arguments that you make during the course of a motion call or a trial, assume that everything you do is being recorded and could subsequently be shared to somebody else, right? Because that's just the reality of, of, of our industry, that, that folks are gonna talk to other folks about how somebody acted, particularly when Again, as you indicated, uh, their behavior was poor. Sure. I mean, and I remember that, and it was probably eight or nine years ago, right? And I remember it vividly. And it's no different than, than the advice you would give your kid with respect to social media. Like, it, nothing goes away. Everybody can see what you're doing, um, and it reflects on your reputation, and it's hard to change that once right. it's established. The internet's written in ink, and so is the practice of law. Yes. You want another one? Yeah. It's exciting stuff. I know. <laughs> uh, I wonder how many people have stayed with us or have now tuned out. Oh, they're all gone. Oh. Well, we were just going to share the... F- no, I'm kidding. We're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, next one. True or false? Litigation is war, so the best approach is to treat opposing counsel as though they are the enemy. Um, 
false. And, and, and I hesitate because our process is by its very nature adversarial. So I do think that there are comparisons that people can draw that, you know, your job is to be a zealous advocate for your client, which I totally agree with. And I, I appreciate attorneys who come in, um, who are prepared, uh, who are making arguments, even if, even if, you know, they're difficult arguments. Look, in our, in our field, some of the things that we have to hear and the things that are being discussed are delicate. Um, it's not easy stuff to digest all the time. And it, it takes a, a very um, sort of daft hand at, you know, making those arguments without coming across as being rude or insensitive or incendiary. And so while I appreciate that approach, because that's just how our system is designed, right? It's, it's folks across the V. It's me versus you. Um, the reality is that you don't have to treat and you shouldn't treat your opposing attorney as if they are your enemy, okay? Um, and, and those were always, for me, the most challenging cases um, when I was in private practice that I would deal with. And, and I think even in my role now as a referee, those are still the most challenging cases because you have attorneys who have taken things to a level that is very personal. And I don't know if that's because they think that's what the clients want to see, that that's the sort of, you know, Hollywoodization of our of the practice that people expect to now see when they come into a courtroom. If I don't see you flipping tables over, you know, and going full WWE on somebody, I don't think you're giving me the representation I deserve. Right. Don't you think though, to some extent, those clients who want that and those attorneys who are willing to do that, find each other. It's like magic. It is. They, I, they find each other. And, but there are certainly, it makes me wonder how many like consultations have been done where the client says, this is how I want it to go. And the attorney says, I absolutely will not do that. And then they just go on to the next one until they find someone who says, sure, no problem. I have no problem behaving in a way that sullies my own reputation, not just on this case, but for all the ones that come after it. Forever and ever. And there are, look, there are buzzwords that I've, heard people use it. I think that's how they find the person they are looking for, right? When, when you have a client looking around saying, I'm looking for a bulldog or I'm looking for a pit bull uh, in my case. And by the way, my pit bull also must have rabies. Um, <laughs> that's, that's code for, I want somebody who is going to do whatever I tell them to do and is going to use a scorched earth policy when approaching my case. And again, there is a line between zealous advocacy and working hard on behalf of your client and being disrespectful to opposing the opposing party, to opposing counsel, and to the court. And I think that's when that line is crossed, that's when attorneys are going to experience more problems than not. Oh, for, for sure. Like I, you know, I always ask this question internally, like, is this one client really worth it? Is it really worth it? How you're behaving on this case for this one client for that to follow you to the next case and the next client and the next case and the next client. 
Um, cause it's, I mean, it's a long slime trail. Right. Um, right. and I think also, you know, it, to some extent you have to leave the acrimony to the clients. If that's how they want to behave, I suppose to some extent we hope that we can exercise some client control, um, or get them to a therapist, which is always a good first move when you've got divorce clients is getting them to a mental health professional who can help them process Mm -hmm. their feelings of acrimony and hatred sometimes with the other party. Um, But if you're going to drink the Kool-Aid and or get down in the mud with them, you've lost your objectivity. And that's part of your job as an attorney is to remain, to be able to retain a perspective where you can see how it's playing out to the court or you can see how it's playing out to opposing counsel. And I think attorneys that don't do that do more damage to families in, in our line of work. Um, but they certainly do more damage across the board than if they're problem solving focused. And I think something you touched on there that's absolutely spot on is that in those cases where the attorneys do engage in that destructive behavior, right? You know, you've taken a family who, you know, the attorney is going to be involved in that case at a minimum for the year that the, that the case is proceeding, right? Somebody's filed for divorce. They've got a couple of kids together. Um, The behavior has been poor from everybody, right? From mom, dad, both attorneys. And, the case finishes, right? I mean, it's going to come to a, to a conclusion, right? A judgment's going to be entered and the parties are going to have to sort of navigate life, you know, separately. And that's sort of the problem is that when you, when you engage in those types of destructive behaviors, you're setting those clients out on a path that isn't productive, that isn't going to put them in a position to co-parent. Um, but as the attorney, you sort of get to like, you know, wash your hands of it and say, well, Mission accomplished. I'm done. But these families now have to go on and and figure out how they're going to coexist living in separate households and co-parenting with one another. Um, And and that's why I think the way in which you, you know, handle the case, as you said, from a objective and professional manner is going to go a long way, not just in terms of enhancing you know, the arguments you make in your case and putting you in a better position to get what you want, but it's also going to do more to getting your clients uh, on a path towards, you know, being able to coexist. So let me play devil's advocate though. If I'm the attorney and I do a really good job of raising the acrimony level between my client and the other side, I'm going to get all kinds of post-judgment work out of that, right? I'm going I'm to be able to bill for all those post-judgment motions because they are unable to co-parent. And every time they can't agree on when drop-off should be on Christmas Eve or whether or not Susie gets to go to swimming this year, um, I'm going to get to line my pocket. So why wouldn't I stir up the acrimony? Because that's Other not... Than, be- like my moral obligation to not be a horrible human being. There's that. But there's also an obligation under our, our code and our canons that you know, we, we represent our clients and, and deliver them a result that serves their best interest. That serves an attorney's best interest, 
but you know, we're not Apple, right? Our job isn't to design a product and then create massive software updates so that that product is obsolete in two years, <laughs> right? That's not what we're supposed to do. Our job is to get folks to a point where, you know, again, no one's expecting, you know, a parent trap situation, right? We're not going to have mom and dad who suddenly find each other 12 years later and get back together, right? I, everybody understands the rules of engagement and what's going on here. And that is you have parties who are, you know, ending a marriage and they now need to go on to separate paths where they can co-parent together to do what's best for their children, right? So if you're an attorney and your end game is, I'm going to stir the pot so badly that every single year, like clockwork, I can count on filing a couple motions to address, you know, legal custody decisions that are being made by one parent unilaterally or pick up and drop off issues. Then you haven't done your job. So two things on that. First is, I can say with relative confidence that I don't think there are attorneys who consciously say, I'm going to turn this into an absolute bloodbath and make it a terrible situation so that I can bill more. I think there are attorneys who are myopic and don't think through what the end result is going to be if they handle a case in a certain way. And then the second thing is you brought up the parent trap situation. And my follow-up question to you is Haley Mills or Lindsay Lohan? I grew up on the Lindsay Lohan version. And I and my daughter is now of age where she has watched the Lindsay Lohan version. So I, I guess I will go Lindsay Lohan version. And I'm going to say having, I probably reached the age of majority prior to the Lindsay Lohan version. I don't know what year that was released. Um, but having grown up with the Haley Mills version, I say Lindsay Lohan all day. It was a better version. The story was good. The scenery was, I mean, you had one parent who got to live in downtown London designing wedding dresses and another parent who owned a massive Napa winery. Win-win. Each of those kids won. Also, stepmom in the Lindsay Lohan version, exquisite. Yeah. Best evil step, potential step parent in all... By and also a reoccurring character in some of our post-judgment cases. <laughs> so, the, the, so the original Parent Trap, as we dive deeper down this hole, came out in 1961. The, really? Yep. The remake was 1998. Oh, yeah. I was super adulting by then. I was, I was, I was 15 when that version came out. Okay. Go to hell. Uh, <laughs> like an, another true-false question? Yes. True or false, your written work product isn't really all that important. Oral argument is where it's at. Uh, that one is also false. What? What? I know. And it is somewhat surprising to me how many times attorneys will file written motions, a response will be filed. You know, they will come to the front of the court meeting or go to the courthouse and they will you know, be presented with a either order or a written recommendation that's already been prepared. And their response is, well, you don't care about anything that I have to say. To which I always politely respond, the court rules don't require 
oral argument on some issues. Some things just don't require oral argument. And that's why what we put in our writing and the things that are in your pleadings, whether it's your complaint, your judgment, your motion, your response, matters far, far more than anything you might have to say if you're provided an opportunity. Michigan, from from what I can tell in talking to attorneys who practice in other states, friends of mine, Michigan probably does more in terms of oral arguments on the record for motion call than a lot of other states do. I mean, a lot of states just sort of, here's your written motion, you'll find out what the judge has to say via order. I, and I think that's becoming more common with the Zoom stuff. I can tell you just based on my experience in the last a little less than a year, um, the opportunity for you to sandbag and bring something up at oral argument that you didn't put in your motion is waning yeah. um, because you got to put it all in writing. You got to put it all there. Um because more and more oral argument is being waived and orders are being issued based on written responses and written motions. And again, I think that's that shift that we talked about earlier on that people are going to start seeing more, right? That there's not maybe going to be an opportunity to stand in front of the court for 20 and 30 minutes on your own and just, you know, throw out all the things that you neglected to include in your, you know, written motion. So, um, the importance of, of making sure your, your pleadings are as well-drafted and as detailed as possible, um, I think, is now going to shift upward with this new manner in which we're conducting hearings. I agree. And I think, I mean, I would anticipate we'd have to do at least a whole one other episode, if not two, about effective drafting with yeah. respect to motion practice. Episodes nine and 10. <laughs> How to write a motion. At least. Okay, what, last one. What not to put in your motion would well, be another spectacular episode. Also, what not to attach to your motion as an exhibit. Yeah. Please stop it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, last one. Are you ready? Yep. True or false. If an issue is argued artfully enough, you can get any kind of relief you need from the court. Uh, yeah, that one's false. That's weird. All these are false. How did that happen? I don't know. Who drafted these questions? <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote these? Who wrote these? The, the, look, uh, and, 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 and there are times and moments where, and we've all been in a courtroom and we've heard it, where you hear somebody who makes a very impassioned, eloquent uh, plea to the court where you think, wow, that that really does sound like maybe we should go along with that. And then you apply the law and you're like, there is no relief that should be granted on this. Or my personal favorite, a very eloquent, articulate, impassioned oral argument um, or written argument for a particular kind of relief or, you know, something specific and whatever document they're relying on actually specifically prohibits that kind of relief. So like you can be as artful as you want, but if the law or a controlling document says no, the answer is still no. Right. Like, I mean, you can be, I don't know, Jerry Spence and it's still going to be a no for me dog because the law doesn't allow it. 
Well, and, and, you know, whenever I hear about cases like that, I always think of, you know, the Rose case, right? Dealing with spousal support where Mr. Rose, you know, entered into a non-modifiable agreement to pay his ex, you know, set sum of support, decides to hand the business over to his kid who promptly runs it into the ground, runs it into the ground. And now Mr. Rose legitimately doesn't have an ability, at least uh, that was presented to the court, doesn't have an ability to make those support payments anymore, right? He thought, I'm going to hand it over to Junior. We're going to keep on doing well. Junior wasn't as, as, you know, uh, I guess with it as Mr. Rose was. And, you know, now Mr. Rose is suddenly facing a, you know, quandary. He, he has to make a support obligation that he can't afford. And I think, you know, that's an example where you could hear a really well-articulated, impassioned plea to the court. I think a lot of people, let's be honest, the reason a lot of those arguments are made is because the circuit court's a court of equity. And so we go to the, this is what feels fair type of argument. And sometimes what is fair or what, you know, your heart thinks should be the correct answer is not what the law says. So for poor Mr. Rose, you made a contract, you agreed to non-modifiable support, and you ran it all the way up to the flagpole uh, to the highest, you know, appellate options, and you you still lost and because that's what the law says. Well, and I think... Um... Too, what seems equitable to one side of the equation doesn't seem equitable to the other side of the equation. Like in the example you just gave, Mrs. Rose, presuming that was her name, um, certainly entered into a contract relying on her ability to get a certain stream of income based on that contract and made decisions um, and choices based on understanding that they had an unassailable contract for what she was going to get. Um, so to her, equity doesn't look like letting him off the hook on a contract that everybody agreed to. Right. So I think that's the ability to look at your own case from a variety of perspectives, not just your clients, um, but also the other side and the court's perspective is, I don't think I had that ability when I was practicing, to be perfectly honest not like I do now. If there's a very different perspective that comes from sitting on not either side of the courtroom, but in exactly. the middle. Yeah. When, when you, when, you, when we are preparing for a motion call the week before, you know, obviously the first thing we see is, is the motion that's being filed. And I think at least I can speak for myself. and I think you as well, you know, when I review that initial motion, my, my first thought isn't, well, this is what's going to happen. It's, well, now let me see what the response says. Because you know there's going to be an argument that's made in that, in that document that is ultimately going to, you know, you're going to have to weigh both of them. I, I, but, but I think what you're saying is, and I was in that same boat, right? Your client comes in, they pitch you this story. You're like, oh my gosh, what an injustice. I, we will go to court and get this immediate relief. We, this will be fixed. We will, we will take care of this. And then you know, you, you go up before a judge or a referee and, and they wouldn't see things the way that you necessarily did because there are two sides. And so the, 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 the way that we approach, you know, hearing these issues is, well, now let me hear what the other person says because I know there's going to be some portion of that that's going to be relevant and compelling 
Sometimes well, I mean, there isn't. I mean, sometimes there isn't. Sometimes you absolutely have a slam dunk winner, but those are few and far between, aren't well, they? I think there are some too where I look at the motion and I don't even need to see the response because just the motion, it's a no. <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, like I, I think those are probably rare also, but there are any number of motions where I read it without the response having been filed yet. And I'm like, I'm, it's an, it's a denial. Yeah. Instead of you had me at hello, it's you lost me at hello. Yeah, you lost me at hello. You lost and, me at your motion filing. <laughs> and I think that's a good way to say goodbye. I agree. I uh, enjoy. How did I do on the test? Uh, you were 100% as yes. I expected you would be. Yes. It did help having those questions in advance. Sure. And the answer key. Right. I wish school was was that easy. So for anybody who's still listening, uh, I think our plan is going to be to record these regularly, weekly. Uh, They'll be uploaded through uh, Apple Podcasts and whatever the Android version is. I don't know if that's Spotify or we'll figure that out. I don't know. We'll figure that out. At, At a minimum, we've got the best intro and outro music of any podcast you're listening to. Well, that might be a stretch. No, it's the it's worth it just to listen to our intro and outro music. I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. Well, it's coming up right now. <laughs> Bye, Ryan. Bye.